Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 127. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jujitsu approach. Matt, what's up? We having beer today? Beer today? What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know. I think at the last episode <laughs> we did together, I cracked a beer, and then on one you did before, you cracked a beer. I'm on coffee now. It's too early oh, yeah. in the day for me. I'm having coffee as well, but later I'm meeting up with some buddies in a backyard meeting for uh, like a groomsman party. He's getting married, so oh man, I think there's going to be definitely beer tonight. <laughs> Awesome. Well, have fun. So on the topic of jujitsu, something that I thought would be a fun conversation today is to talk about framing. Ever since episode one of this podcast, we've talked about how framing is a key strategy for maintaining your alignment when you're on the defense. On the second episode we did, we talked extensively about framing as one of the core mechanics of jujitsu. And I think everyone knows what we mean when we say framing. You know, basically you're using a part of your body to create a barrier that keeps your opponent at bay and allows you to control the distance. But framing is one of those things that I think maybe we take for granted and we don't talk enough about the ideas behind framing. Sort of like how Rob has always said, people say, you know, get your base, get your base. But other than Rob, there aren't many people who actually explain what that means to get your base. So mm -hmm. my hope here is that we can have a conversation about what we mean when we say get your frames, what makes a frame effective, what makes a frame dangerous, and when to frame, when not to frame. So I think this is going to be a fun one. Yeah, frames are just such a fundamental part of jujitsu, even and at schools that don't have a conceptual approach, you still hear the word frame being used a lot. It is just a term that simply describes a barrier, or like you said, or a mechanism that can manage distance. And, you know, we use all different types of our body to frame our opponent. And generally when we use framing is when we are in defensive cycles, for the most part, I kind of have a rule when I'm, I'm explaining guard to my students, as I say, you know, and this is again, this is something from Rob where he says the guard is not a, it's not a sweeping and submitting tool. It's a distance management tool. And once you understand how to manage the distance and off balance, then you can start to sweep and submit. So framing is, is essentially just creating space. And when you're on the bottom framing, most of the time you're caught in a defensive cycle, meaning you are, you're trying to prevent pressure from happening or you're trying to create space so that you can bring your, your guard back into play and create more frames. Generally, when you're on the bottom, if you're framing, I tell my students you're losing or you are defending pressure. If you are gripping and off balancing, you are offensive. So I think that that's a good way to explain offensive versus 
defensive cycles from the bottom position. And that was something that I kind of struggled with. I didn't know coming up through through my earlier belts, you know, when we think about guard retention, we think about shrimps and grambies and things like that. But that doesn't really explain how to become offensive from the guard. So it's important, I think, for the instructors out there when you're explaining the guard to your students to understand that there is a difference between offensive guard and defensive guard. And very much so, we want to minimize the amount of time that we need to frame, at least from a defensive point of view, and focus more on the gripping and the off-balancing. Yeah, absolutely. When you talk about the core mechanics of jujitsu, one of them is frames, right? And frames are interesting in that they are really explicitly for defense. The other mechanics like levers, for example, when you're going for a lever battle, when you're trying to control someone's lever, basically that's the point at which you're going from defense to offense. Frames are really a defensive concept. If you're framing, it's a good indication that you're on the defense. So the reason to frame is because you're trying to control the distance with your opponent and you're trying to get into a situation where you can then win a lever battle and go back on the offense. It's about dictating the pace, right? So frames are about defense and some of the other mechanics are more about offense. Yeah. And framing alone on itself isn't super effective. Like usually how we teach, you know, the first drill you do in jujitsu in a fundamentals class is usually a shrimp. It's kind of the, it's kind of the number one exercise we show beginners. And I I actually listened to a, a podcast with Lex Friedman and Ryan Hall. It was their second podcast they did together. And Ryan Hall mentioned about how he doesn't even think the shrimp is a move because it doesn't really you know, you're never going to perform a shrimp like we do down the mats in a line drill, right? We, it's not really a move that you do too much. And really, I mean, the hip escape is something you do, but very rarely does it work where you do a shrimp and then regard unless you're like white belts, you know, it's you use hip escapes to achieve other means, I think. But really, I mean, think about it, what a shrimp is. If someone's pressuring you from the top and you're trying to shrimp away from them, it doesn't allow you to really get into base. And so I think a common misconception is like when we teach white belts to shrimp, we're not necessarily teaching them how to actually get into base. For example, posting up on your elbow or posting up on your hand where you can do a big hip escape and get back to a, you know, a seated guard, for example. So I think that there are definitely weaknesses associated with just teaching shrimps like this. Even when I show, you know, the kids class shrimps and then they, you know, they have trouble with it and then they finally get it. And then I'll be coaching them during a roll. I'll be like, okay, shrimp out. And then they, they just shrimp meaninglessly. Like they, they did in the line drill where they'll literally like shrimp one way and then get on their other side and shrimp the other way. And then they get their back taken. (laughs) I'm like, fuck, I guess that's really not a smart way to teach shrimping. Like it's not, it's not a super effective movement. The hip escape is an important movement, but using shrimp as as its own isolated move, not all that common actually in jujitsu. And yeah, it's important to discuss that when we're shrimping, a lot of the time you can't just stay on your side. You have to get up into base on your elbow and gain some height. And then that way you can you can truly manage the distance. And the way that I look at that is because uh, a frame with no real meaning meaningful post behind it isn't really as effective because you're literally just taking pressure from your opponent, but you're not actually moving yourself out of the way. When you create a frame and then you back it up with a post behind it that matches the angle of force, that's when you can actually support the weight and you can clear your hips out of the position and actually get back to a meaningful offensive position. So I think there are some common misconceptions behind the shrimp exercise. I think that's an interesting way to cover that Ryan Hall interview. Matt, I have a question. 
I like the way that you paraphrase this, but what I would like to know is what would that sound like if Ryan Hall said it? <laughs> Put me on the spot. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, this move, this move called the shrimp, it's very interesting how you always learn it to beginners and then you go to an advanced class, you never see people shrimp, actually. You know, it's just, it's really weird. Oh, I'm just going to put my hands up and start moving my hips out like that. I mean, why do we call it the shrimp? Why don't we call it the lobster or the crab or maybe another move like that? I mean, if I have to, if I have to fish 1,000 crabs in the freezing frigid waters of Alaska and I only have two boats and I have five nets and a crew of 20 men per boat, I mean, how am I going to do that? Something like that. Fuck, I, 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 can, I can hear you. I can hear you repeatedly blinking through the audio. <laughs> like, sorry, I, that totally derailed my train of thought. But yes, you're you're completely right. And, and Ryan is completely right. And fake Ryan is also completely right. I've kind of come to this realization too, right? We teach students from day one jujitsu to bridge and to shrimp. And really, like shrimping is, an, is a way of making space, right? And a shrimp by itself does nothing. You have to combine that with frames. But the problem is if you just shrimp, or for that matter, if you just hip bump, you'll never get out, right? Because you're probably the guy on the bottom. If yeah. you're the guy on the bottom and the person is on top of you, then they have all of the advantages in the world. They have the advantage of gravity, of base. They can move a lot faster than you and with a lot less energy. So you can sit there and shrimp all day. It's going to take a lot more energy for you to do that. And you're going to be, you're going to wind up moving a lot slower. Whereas an opponent can, if they're good, they can just easily track you. And it's going to be hard to just shrimp faster than they can adapt. So when you shrimp, really what you need to do is you need to combine that with other escape movements. You need to have an escape strategy and not just constantly be trying to shrimp to get away. That's just a good way to burn energy. Yeah, a classic example is when you get double-legged and then your opponent just, they lock their hands around your hips, you know, and you can't really, you can't really move away. You can do a little bit of shrimping, but the more shrimping you do, the more they just they just progress towards your head, right? And you see this mm -hmm. all the time with white belts and even some blue belts where they just, they keep trying to shrimp thinking that that's <laughs> going to save their life, but they just can't make enough space. And really what they're missing is uh, like some, for like a, maybe a collar tie series and then building base mm -hmm. to their elbow or their hand even better. Like I mentioned earlier, a frame is only good if it matches the vector of force from your opponent. And then it's even better when you when that force matches a post behind you. So say a hand or an elbow. And then this in this way, we can really extract our hips from the position of pressure. I mean, I don't know what you'd, you'd even call that, but basically you can clear your hips, make space and reset or go right into an offensive movement like a sumigayashi or something like that. So definitely just framing on itself while lying on your side, you're not really going to go anywhere. But I'd recommend people if, you know, if this is a little bit confusing, I'd recommend you definitely go on YouTube and just check out collar tie regard series or something like that. And, you know, you see this from Marcelo Garcia a lot when he gets his guard passed, he builds his base right up to his elbow. And then his other hand creates a collar tie as a frame from which he manages distance. And it's important to remember when we're framing, we're not really pushing our, our opponent off of us necessarily. Like, I'm not going to say you don't, you never do that. But relying on bench press movements is not really the idea of shrimping and regarding and, and guard retention. It's more so you're just gaining the inside position and just creating a small barrier of space between you and your opponent that prevents them from getting, let's say, chest to chest contact or something like that. And then from there, you can start moving your body away or bringing in other frames to create better structure. 
So I don't really look at frames as, you know, even gaining a lot of space for my opponent anymore, but just essentially just gaining the inside position is kind of how I look at it. And then whatever I do from there, whether it's going to be hipping out or countering or whatever, that's that's going to be on a case to case, you know, scenario. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting take. A frame by itself is usually not an effective defense because you're not putting yourself on a path to getting back onto the offense, right? Having just a frame, if if your defense to an attack is just having a frame, it's sort of the equivalent of a turtle curling up into its shell, right? You're kind of just waiting and hoping that your opponent will give up. (laughs) You're you're not really taking any proactive action to get out of there. So Mm -hmm. if you're framing and you want the frame to be effective, you need to combine it with something else that's going to turn the tide back in your favor. And that could be a post where you frame with one arm, post on the other. And now that you've got some hip mobility, you can change the angle or the position or maybe an inversion, right? Framing it like a Granby away, for example, you're changing the position and the frame is giving you the space to do that. Or maybe you're just trying to get into a position where you can get a lever on your opponent, right? Maybe you're framing to get some space to get to an angle. So now you can attack their arm or attack their neck or get the inside channel, right? That's the idea. If you just frame bad things are going to happen. I mean, I I can think of examples where I try to just frame and kind of hope that my opponent would just like give up and move on to something else. That is never a good idea against someone who knows what they're going to do or what they're doing because they are going to make you pay for it, right? That strategy of just going on full defense, it's not enough. You have to have more than just a frame and you need to tie it to another mechanic so that you can get back onto the attack. One great thing that strong competitors and and good practitioners know is they understand the dichotomy between offensive and defensive cycles. So if you're caught in a defensive cycle and the person on top realizes this, they're not going to stop. I mean, they're going to continue their pressure. They're going to keep enjoying the position and just wearing you out. And, you know, one thing, one thing that is true is pressure is in a way like a, a submission. You know, if you can put pressure on someone and exhaust them, it's like what they say, uh, exhaustion makes cowards of men. And it, it really does. I mean, you can use that as a submission and, and force someone to give up. So if I'm on top and I have chest to chest pressure or my opponents on the bottom framing, but they can't seem to get into base, they can't seem to make space. I'm just going to keep forcing them to frame because it's a lot more tiring from them than me being the person on top who's just essentially just using gravity, right? And the more that the person on top changes their their vector of attack, the more the person on the bottom has to has to reframe and and reset everything they're doing. And it's really exhausting. You know, a prime example would be the match that just happened the other night, Gordon versus Wagner. And you see Gordon literally just exhausted him intentionally. I truly think he could have finished that match within five minutes, but he was making a statement and he said he was going to do that before. And you could see how he was just wearing Wagner out and just forcing him to frame from the bottom and even during the match, he's like passing his guard and Wagner's like framing and just he's just falling deeper into this hole. And you can see it happen right in front of you. And you, and you hear Gordon saying to him, you're sinking, you're sinking. And he's like <laughs> just mentally playing these games with him like, oh, you just lost another frame. Like, I'm I'm just that much closer to your body now and just just took his time. Right. So this is a this is a legit strategy. And if you understand how to play the game of jujitsu, you understand offensive and defensive dichotomy you can totally play this to your advantage you don't even need to really move too fast you know you just need to keep constant forward pressure and you can totally wear your opponent down 
But I think I think it's important to discuss, you know, the like different different types of frames. Like there's good ways to do frames. And then there's also non-effective ways to do frames. Like, for example, generally when I frame, I try to choose frames that are they have integrity. Like I, I don't really want to frame with my palm, for example, or my wrist mm-hmm. because it's a it's a small surface area, first of all. And second of all, it acts on a hinge. So any quick hip switching or any quick change in vector could possibly redirect my frame. Whereas if you frame with a forearm or, you know, your, I don't want to say elbow, but I think from your hand to your elbow, your forearm, that's a much more integral frame. It has a lot of, it can cover a lot of surface area. It can cover a broad surface. And, you know, if someone hip switches on your hand, you're not going to break your wrist if you do it properly. But if you you know, someone's in like a, ha- a half guard on you and you're framing with your hand and then they hip switch. I mean, you could be looking if your elbow has a has the floor underneath it and it's it's wedged in place. I mean, you could be looking at an injury to your wrist. Right. So, yes, there's definitely smarter ways to frame. And usually I choose frames that are on large blunt surfaces that can can hold a lot more weight and have a greater surface area. Yeah, for me, I call this having a solid frame, meaning that you've got a frame that doesn't have many points of failure and your joints tend to be those points of failure, right? A classic example is framing with a stiff arm, like you described, you know, where you're kind of like putting your your palm out and you're trying to stiff arm your opponent away. That frame, when you have a stiff arm, you've got three joints in that frame, right? There's your wrist, there's your elbow, there's your shoulder. That's a lot of places where that frame can collapse. And when it collapses, it collapses spectacularly. I have had that happen to me, what you just described, where I framed on my opponent's hip to block a guard pass, and then they hip switched and it screwed up my wrist, right? Like that's a that's a real legitimate concern. I never advocate for framing off of the hip now because of that situation. And because I know that's such a common thing to happen. So I prefer when I frame to frame with a structure that has as few joints as possible. So normally what I do, if someone is about to pass, I will try to frame with my forearm and I try to keep my elbow pinched close to my body if I can. So what that means is I I don't get a lot of distance on my frame. Like if I were to just, you know, stiff arm you, I've got, I'm going to get a few feet of distance, but that is somewhat of a weak frame. Whereas if I frame with my forearm, It's closer, but it's very, very hard to collapse a forearm frame, right? Especially if I'm keeping my elbow tight, there really aren't a lot of joints that you can attack if someone does that. So it is worth noting that you can also apply frames with a straight arm, you know, for example, like we talked about, it's just a matter of making sure that if you do that, you do it in such a way that your joints can't be locked or broken. So if, for example, you just put like palm out to your opponent and straight arm, you risk dislocating your wrist or your elbow. But if you have a bit of a bend in your arm and you grab the lapel in just the right direction, you can actually stiff arm in such a way that's going to be very challenging for your opponent to collapse your frame. I know that Matt, your instructor, Rob Bernacki does this a lot. He advocates for like the straight arm frame. I'm not a fan of it, but there is a way that you can do it at such an angle, especially in the gi where if you grab the lapel it becomes very difficult for your opponent to actually collapse your arm it's just worth noting that when you are setting up a frame be mindful of the structure of that frame and how it can be collapsed because obviously if it gets collapsed not only does that mean that your frame is collapsed but it also means you could get injured yes straight arm framing in nogi i find 
pretty ineffective. I mean, unless you're doing like a bench pressing movement, like I can think of like a bench press on the face or something like that to make space. Mm -hmm. But like just just by using your your hand in a nogi setting as a frame, usually a simple blade of the shoulders from the top player will basically just destroy that frame. But you are right, actually, in the gi, if you have fixed grips, whether it's a lapel or even a sleeve, you can totally stiff arm that grip. And that's actually a very effective way to prevent your opponent from flanking around your side. When I think of this, I'm reminded of uh, if you have spider guard on your opponent and then they grab your pants. So you're each kind of equal grips and then they they push your legs down into the side and disengage your feet. And now they're starting to run around you. If you just maintain the grip on the sleeve of, of the side that they're flanking to, you can stiff arm that grip and use that to recover guard. So there's definitely a time and place to use hands as a as a stiff arming grip, but I think fixing it to a gi is a smarter way to do it because I think there, there's also a lot less injury in this application. It's not like the, your wrist is actually bearing a lot of weight, but more so that it's just acting as a placeholder to the gi that prevents your opponent from creating that dominant attack vector. So that that actually is a really good point, Steve. There are also some scenarios where you can in no gi straight arm, but you have to be very careful. And usually it involves getting a C grip, right? Like as an example, if someone is trying to go for like a butterfly guard sweep on me and they're trying to get in really tight, I might just C grip them by the throat and frame out. Or if they're on top of me in side control, sometimes you can get a C grip in their armpit and and straight arm them away. You have to be careful not to get arm barred. And if you are careful not to have that happen, then it can be very effective to do that straight arm in nogi. But generally speaking, if you're trying to block a guard pass in nogi with a straight arm, it's probably a bad idea. I like how you call it a C grip. I've I've called it that before, but I've also called it a V grip. I think that's what the Danaher guys call it, where you just take your thumb and your index and you basically strangle someone on the neck. That is a great grip. I'm actually finding tons of versatility from that. You know, if you're playing a, if you like playing half guard, I love half guard. I use it a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really basically from white to black belt used half guard with a underhook. Like that was kind of my Mm -hmm. go-to series was the tight waist series from half guard. But the thing about this is usually there's still chest to chest, not chest to chest, but there's torso to torso contact when you're coming up into the dog fight Quite often your opponent can wizard you. They can also put you in front headlocks because you're so close to them when you come up for underhooks. So there are there are vulnerabilities to underhooks. But what I've been using recently is the V-grip in the armpit. So instead of coming up on a tight waist or an underhook, you basically just take a V-grip on the armpit. And essentially there you're framing with your hand. But the great thing about this grip is... Not only can you prevent your opponent from wizarding you and putting you in front headlocks and getting chest to chest because it's such a great distance management tool because it's literally the the entire length of your arm. But with this frame, you can totally use it to off balance. For example, I can take the V grip on the armpit coming up from the half guard and I can basically shove my opponent towards their far arm and make them post. And then from there, I can start building base and coming up into my it can turn into a underhook if I want, or I could just try and stand up from there. There's tons of tons of use from that. You, it's almost like a throw by. Like if you take a V grip on their armpit and you throw them over top of your head, you a lot of the time you can expose a flank to the back. So that actually is an example of a of a situation where you can use a frame with your hand that allows you to off balance, not just manage distance. That's a good point. A lot of the time with frames. 
yes, you can block forward momentum, but they don't really give you Kazushi, right? One of the things that I dislike about fighting up for the underhook when you're on the bottom is you don't get a lot of Kazushi on your opponent doing that. So it's usually not too much of a challenge for them to whizzer you or, you know, grab your throat, push your head down. But if you come up with that that C grip in their armpit and push them away, you actually will get Kazushi when you come up, which presumably would make it harder for them to just squish down on top of you as you're getting back up. Uh, yes, sir. Should we talk about offensive frames? Absolutely. I mean, I would actually like to know how you would define this because I may have a different classification for this. How would you define an offensive frame? Essentially, it's a frame that immobilizes or traps or obstructs an opponent's ability to create frames or denies them a use of their limbs. So quite often, actually, in training, I was actually thinking about this the other day, like, what really is the difference between a frame and a wedge? You know, because there's a lot of situations where I could use the term frame and wedge interchangeably. A lot of the time we think about frames as just managing distance, but there's also times when I'm on top and I create frames that create immobilization of my opponent. So the the example I just talked about, a V-grip in the armpit from the bottom position, you know, using that to to prevent the underhook from your opponent, using that to prevent the overhook, using that to prevent them from getting a front head or a chest-to-chest, a lot of the time when I'm on top in the half guard position, I can use a V-grip on the far armpit to pin the far shoulder, and this totally stuffs the opponent's underhook. Like, it prevents them entirely from coming up into an underhook position simply by just Essentially, you're just putting the, you're pinning their shoulder with your thumb in the armpit. This is actually something that Rob showed me. He got it from, I think he got it from Kit Dale not too long ago. Well, not too long ago. It's actually probably a few years ago, but it's a super strong strategy to just pin someone's shoulder to the floor. And I use it quite a lot. I mean, in one way, it's a frame. You can't argue that it's, it's, it's managing distance and it's, it's preventing them from, you know, closing the distance. But in another way, it's a wedge. It's immobilizing their shoulder. So really, they're kind of interchangeable in a lot of ways. Like for another another example, and I got this from Taza when he came out, is they do a lot of wrist pinning when they're passing from the half guard. And this is something I try and teach my guys when we are doing guard passing is, you know, when we're guard passing, we don't just want to apply pressure and, and you know, use a variety of passes from different angles, but you want to actually prevent your opponent from using their hands. So if you if you try and pass, but your opponent has full use of their hands, I mean, it, you're going to have frames to deal with. But if you can intercept their hand and pin their wrist to the floor, specifically if, let's say, if I'm, in, if I'm in half guard and I'm looking to start passing, a lot of the time I try and pin the bottom wrist to the floor now. And this is extremely effective because that's a very valuable frame for the person on on the bottom. And if you can do that and you mitigate the the use of that that hand, I mean, they can't frame with it. They can't grip with it. It's an extremely valuable tool from the top. So you again, it's a frame in that you are pinning the wrist and preventing it from grabbing you and closing the distance. But it's also a wedge in that it's immobilizing their wrist. And then from there, you can start looking to get inside position, underhooks, get chest to chest, you know, and, and really get get some pressure going from the top half guard. So there's lots of examples I have like this where where a frame can actually stifle an opponent's defense and allow you to get that chest to chest position and start pouring the pressure over their shoulders. 
Yeah, that leads to an interesting question, which is what is the difference between a frame and a wedge? And really, they're not that different, right? Basically, you're taking a thing and you're trying to use it to block your opponent's movement. I would argue the difference is, like you said, it's intent, right? With a frame, normally you're using that to control the distance. And normally that means you're on the defense. With a wedge, normally you're either using that to inhibit your opponent's movement, to pin them into position, or to pry something open. And in those situations, you're normally on offense. But what you're doing is basically the same thing, right? Like you're using a solid structure to inhibit your opponent. It's just in one situation, you're using it as a distance management tool, and then the other, you're using it as an offensive weapon. But it's really not that different in terms of what you're actually doing. You just, you know, it's different strategies in different moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even in situations where you're where you're prying with, let's say, a wedge, like there's examples when you'll pry open structures with, let's say, your elbow or even a thumb post or something like that. I mean, <laughs> in a way, it's it's still a wedge, you know, like you can't really you can't really argue that it isn't one. But yeah, I mean, when I think of wedges, I tend to think of opposing forces, like, for example, an arm bar, you know, applying wedges around a leg so that you can apply braking pressure. I guess it's a frame, but it's it's kind of a different application, right? Mm-hmm. Or let's say holding the 411 and, and scissoring your legs to create a strong opposing wedge force on the leg to immobilize it and prevent the knee line from escaping. You know, it's a slightly different application from a frame, but a lot of the time they are they are interchangeable terms, I find. Yeah, if you want to kick it back to middle school physics, every force is met with equal and opposite force. And that's basically what a frame is when you're on the defense. That's what a wedge is when you're on the offense. It's just you're using it for different purposes. That's essentially how I would describe it. Is if defensively, I think of I think of these obstructions as frames. Offensively, when I'm trying to isolate limbs, I think of them as wedges, right? And that and that makes total sense. I mean, when you're pinning someone from the top position, you don't really say like create frames around their body. You you, you talk about wedges, right? Immobilizing, getting the inside position, and sort of pinning them in place. Whereas a frame generally, when I talk about frames, we're discussing making space. Yeah. It's also worth noting that when you're on the defense, you're basically often framing off of your opponent because the goal is to make space away from them. Whereas when you're on the offense, often your goal is to take space away. So you're normally using wedges, not directly on your opponent, but beside them because you're trying to take away their movement. So that is a a pretty significant difference. Definitely. And I think it's also important to think of like when we talk about offensive frames, Well, one that I can think of that is so obvious for me is your head. You know, if you're using top pressure passing from the half guard position or even the body lock position, a lot of the time your head position creates a a frame that prevents your opponent from using their hands because they've got this giant obstruction in their face. And most of the time, if your head position is proper, they can't even push your face away because your head is so close to their opponent. So you know, if I'm in a top half guard cross face and underhook position, my head is usually on the floor, meaning my chest is on my opponent's face and there's no ability that they can get inside position with their hands unless they create some kind of an off balance first. 
and then they can pummel their hands back to the inside. So a lot of the time when I'm on the top and I'm pinning with my head, I'm using that head position to prevent them from creating space and preventing them from getting their hands to the inside of their face. This is such a common mistake for beginners when they're on top trying to do pressure passing. They leave their head up in the air or even a few inches, they'll leave their head off the mat. And that that really detracts from the pressure that they're able to create when compared to putting their head straight on the floor. It really is an impressive difference between head just a few inches off the floor and head right on the floor. And I think a great instructional to study this is Danaher's half guard passing DVD. I mean, that is, that's been really game changing for me. It's all stuff that I honestly, I should know as a black belt, but just to see him teach these basics are so valuable. Just like, oh, if I put my head literally two inches more on the floor, I can generate way more base and way more pressure. Another thing is it prevents your opponent from pushing your face away, which is obviously an added bonus. So definitely using your head offensively as a, as a frame can prevent a lot of defense from your opponent. I find when someone is new to jujitsu, they're really only thinking about their hands, right? They're, you know, when, if you think about what you do on a daily basis, you don't really pay a lot of attention to what your legs are doing. They're for walking, right? Your hands are where you're doing tactile things. You're using keyboards, you're picking things up, you're holding your phone, you're holding your kid, you're eating. So I find that when people come into jujitsu, normally they're super preoccupied with where their hands are. And once someone gets a bit more experience, really the big breakthrough where people start to get good is they start to learn to use their hands and their feet in tandem, kind of like an octopus, right? So now they got four weapons. But a, a detail that often comes through last when people start getting really advanced is they start to understand the importance of using their, their head as well. I mean, your head, it's not as powerful as your hands or your legs, but it is a fifth frame or a fifth wedge that you can use. And if you're fighting a high-level opponent, you want to use every frame and every wedge that you can to your disposal, right? So yeah, a great example like you brought up, if you're fighting for the inside channel and you're trying to take a butterfly guard or you're going for a butterfly sweep, you want to be using your head as a frame against their chin or their jaw because you don't want them to get their head underneath yours. If you don't do that detail, you're going to have a real hard time maintaining butterfly guard. So the head is a very underutilized frame. And it's important to remember that in addition to your arms and your legs, this is another weapon that you have at your disposal. I mean, of course, you don't want to be stupid, right? Especially if you're on the defense, you have to be very mindful in terms of what's going on with your head because it's such an obvious target for your opponent. But if you can use your head as a frame in a position where your opponent cannot ensnare your head, like wrap on a guillotine or something, then that's a very, very powerful frame at your disposal. And that also means that you can use your arms and your legs for other things and not just framing. Yeah, usually in jujitsu, we do think about just using our hands and and it takes years to learn how to wrestle with our legs. Even Danaher talks about that, right? Like mm-hmm. wrestling with your legs is kind of the, a lot A lot of that is the essence of jujitsu. But when you learn that your head can be used as a frame as well, it's almost like a cheat code. It's like, yeah. that is that is one of the strongest frames possible because when you used properly. It's a cinder block. Yeah, it's, well, it's a cinder block and it's at the end of the, it's at the tip of the spear of, which is basically your torso. And when used properly, you can drive all your weight behind it. So things like pressure passing and half guard passing and tight chest to chest positions, I find like 90% of the effectiveness of those positions has to do with where I put my head. You know, if I, if my head is not in the right position, the position falls apart. So really important to think about, start using your head as a, as a, 
as a frame, even like the the Pez dispenser where you drive your scalp underneath the guy's yeah. chin and just pin him flat to the floor and deny him movement. Essentially, what you're doing is you're using your head as a frame or or a wedge interchangeably. That's how I open up a lot of topside chokes like the Ezekiel or even some shoulder crush chokes is I use the top of my head to drive into my opponent's jaw, which forces their head to turn away, which exposes their neck. And of course, because I have a shaved head, it has the side benefit of being like sandpaper on the face, which of course <laughs> is important because I got to win those gold medals when I'm training with my friends in the gym. That's right. How, how come you don't have any cauliflower ears? Because I wear the ear guard, probably. Also because I'm a little coward, so my whole game is <laughs> tailored around not doing anything aggressive. Like, I rarely ever shoot a double. I only shoot a single if it's, like, a very safe single. I do a lot of low singles, so I don't have a lot of moves that lead with my head because, again, I'm a coward. So as a result, I don't have cauliflower ear. And on top of that, I wear ear protectors. Yeah. What would you do if you got cauliflower ear? Would you get it, like, surgically fixed, or would you just... Just go with it. What would you do? I mean, I'd, I'd want to get it removed if for no other reason so that I could wear fucking earbuds and listen to music. <laughs> get the entire ear removed? <laughs> well, no, yeah, like Van Gogh, just, just cut it off. No, no, no. I mean, I'd, I'd probably get it fixed if for no other reason so that I could wear earbuds. But yeah, it's a tricky thing because if you're training jujitsu, that's always an ongoing concern. So I just wear, you know, ear protectors all the time and it's never been a problem. And of course, because I don't compete, I'm just, I'm not in a high intensity situation where I'm not allowed to wear earbuds so you know me man i roll onto the mat i've got my earbuds i've got my little hand protectors i've got my socks i come in like my you know basically like my toddler right you know where you dress her up in her jammies <laughs> and she's covered from head to toe and she's got a nightcap on that's basically how i train jujitsu yeah one of my one of my students he's a white belt he just recently got cauliflower ear and he's like he's stressing about it right and he's like yeah you know it's, it sucks should i drain it and i'm like I'll be honest, man. If you drain it, it's just going to come back. Even if you just sleep on it, it's going to keep filling up. Really, the only thing you can do is not train for like months and months and months. And and even then, it's never going to look the same. You might as well just focus on being as good at jujitsu as you can, because otherwise you're just an ugly guy who can't fight. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, what do you care? Like, you know, you got a cauliflower like that. That's a badge of honor. That'll let people know in public areas, you know, what you're into. And then he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really mind how it looks too much. It's just that it's closing in and I can't wear earbuds and it's affecting my, <laughs> my hearing. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty, that's a legitimate concern. That's pretty serious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the cosmetic thing, it, it's funny. I mean, you know, of course, when I was younger, I was very concerned about cosmetic things like that. But it, as you get older, the less and less you care, right? You, you you just realize how unimportant that stuff actually is and you have other priorities to deal with. But yeah, if it's actually impacting like your hearing or your quality of life, I would maybe consider doing something about it. <laughs> yeah. I do know people who have had that surgery and it, you know, it's worked very well. It's not like a big deal from what I understand. So it's something to think about. But yeah, of course, the the question you have to ask yourself is how am I just going to prevent this from happening again? So again, that's where like the ear guards come into play. But anyway, yeah, that can happen if you use your head as a frame, right? So just bear that in mind. It doesn't always happen, but it is a risk if you're running head first into things. And so as a result, much of my game is based around trying not to run headfirst into hard objects that might be coming toward me. Yeah, for years, I didn't have any cauliflower ear. And then I got one. I can't even remember how it happened. I was just, I, I don't know if I was shooting in or whatever. And then one side blew up. And then for like another two years, I only had one side. 
And then I was actually, I actually went to your school years ago and Dave Kennedy was teaching a class. That's Oh God. Dave Kennedy, kind of a, kind of an unknown hero. Like this guy, this guy could be like world champ if he had trained, you know, from the, from the beginning, just like if he was obsessive, I mean, I'm pretty sure he could have been at that level, but just supernatural athletic specimen, really good grappler. But he was demonstrating an omoplata on me and I was on my knees on the, you know, he had the omoplata on, I was on my knees and then he was discussing, how, oh, here's how you break a guy down to a hip once you get the omoplata. And as he hipped out, you my- punch him in the ear. <laughs> no, no, not quite. My ear, I wasn't expecting him to break me down like that. And my, he totally like dragged my head across the floor and my ear just got like completely folded onto the floor during a demo. And I was oh, like- boy. And I knew right away I came, I'm like, fuck, I broke my ear. I can, I can feel it right now that I look in the mirror. Yeah. It's like blowing up. And then once it starts, it's so hard to stop because there's trauma inside the ear and the cartilage is broken. So, you know, if you just, if you just keep training seriously, you know, it's not going to go away. Like you have to, you have to take extensive amounts of time off. Right. So, but why wouldn't you be proud of it? You should be just <laughs> be proud of it. If you, if you really love jujitsu and you have it, I mean, I kind of think about it as like a, it's like a badge of honor, right? It's like, it's like a snake that has like that black and red snake. So it's, it's a warning, right? <laughs> <laughs> if I had cauliflower ear, I would want it on both ears. I wouldn't want it on just one. Oh, really? I actually liked having just one. It's kind of cool, <laughs> but whatever. I'm, I'm just used to it now. Yeah. Well, anything else we want to add on the topic of frames? I mean, I think that's a pretty helpful discussion. No, I, I mean, I guess, I guess when we talk about wedges and frames, again, just circling back to that comparison between frames and wedges, I guess frames don't, like in a defensive setting, frames don't necessarily need opposing wedges. Like if someone's on top of you and you're pushing them away with your hands, there's no wedge behind them. You're literally just using it to make space. But let's say you're using a cross face Technically, yes, it's a frame against the side of their face, but it's wedging you know, you're using your shoulder and then your arm is behind their back and then also wedging them into the ground. So there is like opposing wedges around their head. So I guess when I think about the difference between frames and wedges, I think about, is there an opposing frame or wedge as well? And also the context, is it an offensive situation or is it a defensive situation? Yeah. With a wedge, you're trying to inhibit movement. So you kind of have to have wedges on both sides because if you only have a wedge on one side which is kind of what a frame is then your opponent can just move backwards right and if you're on the attack you want to prevent that whereas if you're on the defense and you're framing you're not realistically going to be able to stop the guy from moving the goal of the frame is just to make space and allow the rest of your body to move and to improve position right so yeah you wouldn't have an opposing frame Mm. Whereas with a wedge, when you're trying to prevent movement from your opponent, you would have an opposing wedge so that you lock them into position. Yeah. And frames can be used defensively in a lot of other ways. Like, for example, you know, like a knee elbow connection when you're inside of someone's open guard and they have your sleeves and you drop down to one knee just by creating that knee post. You know, essentially you're creating a frame that denies them the ability to shoot their hips up into a triangle or into an arm bar. So that would be another example. You know, I, th- I think before the show, Steve, we were talking about using frames to defend situations, like even like a leg entanglement situation. You know, how do you use a frame to defend a leg entanglement situation? 
I mean, obviously, and we plan on doing a, a series on leg entanglements. Like it's probably going to be quite extensive. We can't really go too much into detail right here, but you know, just even defending your knee line, one of the best things you can do is joining your knees together, like buddying up your knees together and doing that. You do, you prevent your opponent from actually sucking your knee knee line into the leg entanglement. So that's that's one thing you can do too is just pummel your knees so that they're they're side by side buddying up next to each other and yeah that can prevent a lot of leg entanglements when you're in the let's say the double seated position or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Do you think with a frame when you're framing off your opponents? it's a good idea to try to make your frame pointy. Like for example, if you're trying to pass my guard, like, and you're trying to put all of your weight down on me, what about if instead of using like my forearm as a frame, I use the tip of my elbow, right? Because I mean, it sucks, it hurts. It's often a good idea to to put all your pressure in one place, but normally you do that when you're on the offense, right? Like if I'm trying to pass your guard, when I go for a knee cut pass, the reason I'm sort of doing that is because I'm like using the tip of my knee as a prying wedge to pry open your guard. It's very mm-hmm. powerful when you're on the offense to minimize the surface areas of the wedge so that it's like it's a sharp point. Do you find that useful when you're on the defense using a frame? Like, is, is it really a good idea if you're trying to squish down on top of me to use the point of my elbow instead of using like the whole forearm of my elbow? Interesting conversation, and it's I think it's completely contextual. So I'll give you an example where I think it's a good example, but g- generally I think it's a bad example. So first of all, as a good example, if someone is, let's say they're trying to, again, we'll go back to the collar tie regarding series. So someone's locking, trying to body lock you, and you're trying to get your arm back inside into a collar tie, you can totally use your elbow, pummel your elbow in first to get the collar tie. Like your elbow is a sharp just like you were describing in the knee cut, the elbow is a is a very sharp part of your body that you can totally use to wedge into small tight spaces and create a frame. And that would be a prime example, you know, going to the collar tie from the from the collar tie regard series. However, you have to be careful when you're framing with your elbow. If you were passing mm-hmm. on me from the top and I use my elbow and you now just redirect my elbow to the side. You know, once once someone's elbow crosses their center line, there's chance for back exposure. There's a chance for a katagatame. It can get really hairy. So to answer your question, there's times when I would do that, like a collar tie hip escape. But most of the time, no, I don't want to. I actually don't want to expose my elbow because elbow crossing the center line generally can lead to bad things. Yeah. Same with exposing your knee. If you're using your leg as a frame, I would say that this is another critical difference between frames and wedges, which is that with a wedge, it's okay to have a sharp pointy wedge and kind of like minimize the surface area so that you're not like just using your shin as a wedge, but maybe you're using the tip of your knee. Same with the elbow because you're, you're on the offense, right? You're on the attack. You can use that elbow or that knee as a prying wedge to break open someone's guard, or you can use like the tip of your head as a prying wedge even. But when you're on the defense, like if you're trying to use the point of your elbow as a frame to block your opponent, it's not a great idea. I played around with that for a while because my thought pattern was, well, you know, what if I were like a porcupine, right? And I just put up a bunch of pointy frames. My opponent's not going to want to lie down on top of those, right? It's going to hurt them. It's going to be uncomfortable. And that's true. But the problem is because you're opening and exposing your own elbow, 
like you said, Matt, it allows your opponent to trap your arm or it allows them to switch the force vector and collapse that arm completely. If, if my elbow is in tight and I'm bracing against you, framing against you with my forearm, it's going to be very hard for you to collapse that frame. But if I'm kind of trying to stick my elbow in your face, you can quite easily isolate my arm or change your body angle and it will just collapse that frame. So that's another mm-hmm. pretty significant difference, right? With a frame, very rarely do you want to have pointy frames with your elbow sticking out or your knee sticking out. Whereas with a wedge, it's often okay. Like if I want to use my elbow as a wedge in some cases, it is rare, but you know it's not likely to result in a ton of trouble. Similarly, you can definitely use your knee as a wedge, right? This is very, very common. The knee cut pass being the primary example of this, right? Where you're using it like a crowbar. It's okay for wedges, but not a good idea for frames to be doing that. Yeah, or or even just opening the the closed guard with the knee and the tailbone yeah, uh, yeah. detail. Which, by the way, I've always had problems doing that that guard break, the closed guard break, where you put your knee in the tailbone and then you kind of move the back leg behind you. Like the way that I did that, mm-hmm. it never really worked when I was coming up. But I just started watching Danaher's guard passing instructional, and he showed a detail. I'm like, that's why that's not working. And now I do it the way Danaher shows. It fucking works every time. <laughs> the big guy's so great. The mistake I used to make coming up when going for that type of guard break was I thought it was about creating ass pain. Like I thought that the mechanic that made it work was like a pain compliance thing where you're kind of like jamming your knee into their tailbone and you kind of hope it'll like hurt. That's a very, very common actual white belt mistake with using prying wedges is you're, you know, you're trying to like dig your elbow into their, into their thigh and you're hoping that like through pain compliance, they'll open the guard. That's not what makes those mechanics work, right? You're using the wedges to immobilize people. You're not using them for compliance. If you're trying to use a a prying pointy wedge to, to hurt someone, very unlikely that's going to be effective against anyone who's decent. That is correct. Yeah. But it is fun to like drive your knee into someone's ass and see what they do. <laughs> Not just my knee. <laughs> well, with that Chins, said, Matt. Fingers, all types of things. <laughs> to tie this up, any closing thoughts on the topic of frames? No, I mean, that was pretty comprehensive. I liked it. That was actually a really cool chat. I didn't think we were going to be able to uncover that many concepts about just talking about frames, but yet we did it. I'm actually surprised we haven't had this conversation earlier because we frames are such a common thing to talk about and they're such a fundamental mechanic movement of jujitsu. So yeah, glad it got done. Yeah, I think there's a lot of really critical things that maybe we took for granted in the early episodes and we just said they exist, right? If you go back and listen to episodes like one through five of this podcast, we introduce all of these concepts and we talk about them briefly, but we haven't really done deep dives into all of them. And I would love to maybe reevaluate that, like to do an episode just on levers or just on posts could be very, very interesting. So hopefully this was a useful topic the conversation of frames. I mean, I actually learned a lot from having this conversation. I feel much more equipped now to explain to people what a frame is and how it differs from other core mechanics like wedges. So with that said, Matt, if there's nothing else to add, I can just quickly rattle off what we talked about today in terms of the mental models that we discussed. Of course, first and foremost, we talked about the core mechanics of jujitsu. This is 
language that we get from Rob Bernanke. We did a whole podcast on this back in episode two, but when you hear us talk about things like frames, levers, wedges, posts, that kind of stuff is the core mechanics of jujitsu. We've got a page on our website that explains this. And again, I'd love to dig deeper into this in future episodes. It's important to understand this terminology because it's sort of the basis for the language that we speak here. And it's the basis for the language that the Island Top Team system is based upon as well if you're using Rob's instructionals. We talked about controlling the distance. The fundamental reason to use a frame is because you're trying to do distance management. You're trying to slow down or halt an incoming attack to buy yourself time so that you can change direction, you can get to a better position, you can perhaps latch onto a lever, maybe invert. Basically, what you're trying to do is, again, you're trying to change the tempo. You're trying to dictate the pace. Jiu-jitsu is so much about offensive versus defensive cycles. When you're using a frame, by definition, you're kind of on a defensive cycle. It's a powerful technique, but again, that goes into our next concept, which is defending with purpose. A common mistake that people make with frames is they try to use frames to defend. That's all they're trying to do is they're trying to defend, defend, defend. Well, the problem is if you're in a defensive cycle, just framing by itself is probably not going to be enough. You've got to find a way to go back on the offense uh, and to dictate the pace. So a frame in isolation is likely not going to be particularly helpful. You're going to need to combine that with a, a post or an angle switch or grabbing onto a lever. You don't want to just frame forever because by definition, if you're on the defense, you're already at a disadvantage. We talked about force vectors. When you're framing, it's critical to frame in the direction of the incoming force. The way that your opponent is often going to try to collapse your frame is they're going to do things like hip switch or change the angle of the attack. And if your frame no longer meets that force at the exact correct angle, it's going to collapse their frame or they can go right around it, right? And that renders it useless. So a big part of using frames effectively is tracking the force vector that your opponent is coming in and matching it and making sure that they never get around it. We talked about inside channel control, um, often called uh, inside position, a very similar concept. So when you're going for things like butterfly guard, for example, or underhook wrestling, you're going for inside channel control and framing is a powerful way to kind of brace and get into a position where you can then go in and get that inside channel. We talked about solid frames, the idea that you don't want to have a lot of structural fail points in a frame. If you are stiff arming, you have to be careful because you've got three joints there at play, your wrist, your elbow elbow and your shoulder, and any of those joints can be collapsed. So you generally want to have frames that don't have a lot of points of failure in them, meaning you don't want to have a lot of joints that can be collapsed, can lead to injury. But that said, we provided some examples of when it is okay to stiff arm, or you know, you could also stiff leg in some cases. You just want to make sure that your opponent can't make you pay for it. We talked about Kazushi. Usually frames are not used to create Kazushi, but Matt gave some good examples of when they actually can do that. Like if you create a C cup in your opponent's armpit and you push them away, that kind of frame can actually create a degree of Kazushi. We talked about head position. Again, the head is a highly underutilized frame. You just have to make sure you don't get choked. And we talked about surface area. This is one of the main differences between frames and wedges. When you're framing defensively, you usually want to use like your forearm or your shin, but when you're on the offense, you can use less surface area. You can, for example, use your knee as a wedge, and that's something you probably would not want to do with a frame is to use like the tip of your elbow or the tip of your knee. That was a really in-depth conversation, Matt. I had a lot of fun. What did you think? Yeah, quite good. 
quite good. <laughs> and I got a Ryan Hall impression out of you, which I, I think was also pretty prime. Yeah, I wish he'd come on our show. <laughs> Why won't he come on our show? Did we not do enough? <laughs> well, maybe what we need to do is we need to just continuously shill his stuff to the same extent that we shill Rob Bernanke's stuff. And maybe at some point he'll get on here. I actually, uh, one of my one of my students showed me some stuff that Ryan Hall shows on his new Back Attacks DVD. Very cool stuff. Like stuff that he showed me some some concepts with the seatbelt. He has this new seatbelt. I don't even know if it's new, but he's calling it the Merkel. I've heard about this. Yeah, it's it's really cool. It's it's totally different from stuff I've done. Guys, definitely check out Ryan Hall's uh, Back Attack instructional. Ryan, please come on the show. We all want to hear from you. <laughs> I definitely want to hear from him. Do you know why it's called the Merkel? Because based on the spelling, I'm assuming he's not naming that after former German Prime Minister Angela Merkel. I have no idea why it's called that. <laughs> it might all even right. be like an old wrestling move or something. I have no idea. I feel like maybe I should educate myself. <laughs> Ryan, come on the show. Educate our listeners and most of all us. Cool. If you don't, I'll keep imitating you. <laughs> Yo, we we will either get Ryan Hall or we will create our own Ryan Hall. It's up to you, <laughs> yeah. buddy. Your choice. <laughs> so thanks again to everyone for listening to this. Please do write in if you have any questions. Uh, let us know if you found this helpful. I thought this was a really cool conversation. Of course, the best way to support our show is on Patreon. Patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. It's more than just a pledge service. It's a full premium subscription that we offer. There's a ton of content on there, but probably the most valuable thing you get for pledging is getting into our community and building two-way relationships with people like Matt, myself. We got a lot of quality black belts on that community right now, so I really do highly recommend you consider it. We've got a lot of different pricing tiers depending on your financial situation and your level of commitment. So again, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. It's the single best thing you can do to help us keep the show going. Again, that's patreon.com slash models. Of course, beyond that, you can go to our website, bjjmentalmodels.com. If you go on there, there's a full glossary and really a whole database of the concepts that we talk about here on the show. A lot of great supplementary material if you want to learn more about these ideas. There's also a handy contact form if you want to get in touch with Matt and myself. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store to pick up gee patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join to hop on our mailing list. And of course, you can check us out on Facebook and on Instagram. Matt, good chat. You going to go off to this party now? Let's get fucked up. (laughs) Don't do drugs, kids. Well, thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. And thanks again for everyone for spending the time with us. We'll talk to you next week. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.